It's time for Security Now. We end our 14th year of broadcasting and begin our 15th with a banner episode. We will talk about a banner update from Microsoft. How many how many things did they fix? A bunch on Patch Tuesday. Why you might want to consider dumping your semantic and Norton antivirus. And maybe Kaspersky, too, while we're at it. Then we'll talk about a new Bluetooth attack called Knob. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 728, recorded Tuesday, August 20th, 2019. The knob is broken. Security Now is brought to you by Helm. Take back your email, files, and photos and own your own data with Helm, a secure personal server that lets you own your own identity online. Go to thehelm.com slash security now and save $50 off the Helm personal server. And by NetScout. Once in your network, attackers spread quietly and systematically, often going undetected. With NetScout's visibility without borders, the attackers can't hide. Detect, mitigate, and prevent threats before it's too late. See what you're missing at NetScout.com. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your security, your privacy. We cover how Internet, computers, technology, networks work. We do it all with this guy right here. Mr. Steve Gibson of the GRC Corporation. <laughs> Hello, Stephen. Hello, my friend. Welcome back. Jason held the fort down while you were in having a podcast movement. In, uh, <laughs> it came out beautifully, too. Uh, Orlando or something. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for filling in for me. Yeah, we were in our beautiful, hot Orlando. Ah, it was, yes. It was sweaty. But the funny thing is, it's very tropical. They have these massive rainstorms every afternoon. So, But it was a lot of fun. And Moments ago, I saw the news on, I think it was The Verge, announcing that we were going to have a fourth Matrix movie that well, Keanu and, uh, <laughs> what? Matrix 2 and 3 were so darn good. Why would you stop there? <laughs> I can't say I'm excited uh, well. about another bad sequel to one of the great movies of all time. Yeah, it was one of the great yeah, movies of all time. But they really fell down in 2 and 3, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I agree. Um, so we, oh, well, Lee, I don't know if you looked at the picture of the week, but it gets kind of gives away what's happening. Uh, the very first podcast you and I ever recorded was August 19th. Today's what? the 20th, wow. August 19th of 2005. So I remembered Elaine's correction from a couple months ago that we would be starting year 15 on the podcast of August 20th, which is today. Oh, so happy birthday! This is, this is the podcast 14th birthday. Woo. We have survived 14 years of escalating security dilemmas <laughs> and and resolutions and interest, and we're God, plowing it now into... Today, year 15. If you had gone yes. to Podcast Movement, the podcast convention, you would have realized how old we are compared to this you know, group of young people who have just discovered podcasts. And Leah, we look the same as we did we 15 years ago. We have not changed in 14. Now, although this mustache seems to be getting a little whiter. So <laughs> I don't uh, the rest of you looks the same. That's, that's the good news. Keto is so, keeping you in good shape. That's right. Uh, uh, 
we're going to take a look at last week's monthly patch Tuesday, which was interesting, and its collision with some third-party AV add-ons. Uh, we examine uh, four years of Kaspersky's unique web user tracking that nobody knew was Can going on. Can you believe on. that one? That's so uh, annoying. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to look again at Tavis Ormandy's discovery of the secret undocumented CTF protocol, wondering WTF is CTF. Uh, <laughs> We also note a new and devastating strategy in the ransomware battle, which hit Texas last Friday. Uh, we've got the sad demise, uh, well, pending, of extended validation certificates. Not looking good for those EV certs. The further removal of FTP support from web browsers. I don't think anybody cares. Um, and, of course, if you do, you can just get an FTP client. So, come on. Uh, we also have... Google's campaign to still further reduce web certificate lifetimes that I have some strong opinions about. Uh, also, Netflix, twice now, they've, like, I didn't even know Netflix had a security group. Uh, actually, it's the same guy, Looney, uh, who isn't, uh, because he's discovered eight implementation flaws in the new HTTP2 protocol. Uh, which we're going to talk about. We'll also cover a bit of miscellany, uh, a quick update on my file syncing journey, uh, touch on a little squirrel news and spin right, and then conclude with a look at the most recent attack. And boy, it, I was getting some deja vu because I'm thinking, did we already know about this? But I guess not. The most recent attack on Bluetooth pairing negotiation, oh, which fun. renders all Bluetooth associations vulnerable to a trivial attack known as the knob <laughs> attack. So I think, yes, another great podcast for our listeners as we start into a robust year 15. A robust 15th year. That's kind of amazing. Happy birthday. Or happy anniversary, I don't know. I guess you can't call it a birthday yeah. if it's a podcast. Hey, do you know what this is? You know what this is by now. That is my... Oh, of course I do. That's my that, home that, server. That's a, sw that's a Swiss chalet. It's a beautiful... It looks like a ski chalet. It is a pyramid. But it is a your own home, personal home server. It's the helm. And I've had one for some time now. It, doing my email, I just got an email from one of our listeners, a Helm user, who says, hey, great news, NextCloud is now available, so you can put NextCloud on here. I know you were looking at NextCloud as one of your possible cloud storage solutions. Yep. Uh, this thing is is really awesome if you're interested in privacy. The last thing you want to do if you're interested in privacy is keep your most important data, your email, on some third-party server out there in the cloud, especially if that third-party is an advertising company. Uh, you might want to think twice. But here's the good news. It's hard to set up your own home mail server. Somebody like Steve Gibson can do it. Um, but he has a rather unusual network setup. Doing it uh, with a home internet service provider is well nigh impossible. Most ISPs block outbound email, port 25. And in most cases, even more importantly, uh, the, the IP address blocks used by... Uh, uh, private, you know, uh, home ISPs are blocked by most inbound incoming mail servers. 
So Gmail, for instance, will reject your email if it comes from a home server. Why? Well, because quite reasonably, they presume if it comes from a an IP address block that is, you know, somebody at their house, uh, you've probably been co-opted. You're sending out spam. But Helm has figured out a way around this whole thing. A personal server that lives with you in your home comes with 128 gigs of storage. But if you look on the back, you'll note it has two Type-C connectors, which means you can add up to five terabytes of external storage. Setup is fast and easy. It does require a smartphone. And that's for security reasons, because one of the great things Helm's doing is in-person authentication, two-factor authentication, using Bluetooth LE. So when you're standing next to your Helm server, you can set up your account. But if you're not, if you're a bad guy, if you're on the Internet, you have no access to it. And I think that's fantastic. Helm has done the right thing by creating a way for you to send outbound email without breaking your terms of service or upsetting your ISP. It has an encrypted channel, an IPsec encrypted channel, to its servers where they have purchased in your name an IP address, conditioned it, make sure it works with all the major email clients. They also add the authentication techniques that companies like Google and Yahoo and Microsoft are looking for when they accept inbound email, DMARC, SPF, and DKIM. Your email now will be signed with those three technologies. That also means it's much more likely to get through. It is so simple to set up. You're fully encrypted. Your keys are managed by a secure enclave. We know that's the best way to do it. And with my helm, I got a USB key, which pops right into the top. There's actually a fourth Type-C slot right here. And I copy the recover keys, recovery keys onto this USB key, and then I bring it to work, so that which is here, by the way, so that I can recover my data because your data is trust no one encrypted. And those recovery keys are the only way you can get it back. So even if your server dies or is you know, consumed by flames, uh, you still have your email. It's all fully backed up on the Helm servers fully securely. TLS encryption with certificates from your own domain. Oh, yeah, that's another nice feature. You can have your own domain. I have my own email domain. And it goes through Let's Encrypt, so that's nice. Proximity-based two-factor authentication, I mentioned that. Encrypted off-site backups, only accessible to you, I mentioned that. And now you've got NextCloud. So you can do file sync, file sharing, photo backup, calendars, contacts, all of that on your own server. Eliminate Dropbox. Eliminate Google Drive. Eliminate Gmail. Do it all in the most private way possible. Privacy ought to be a right, not a setting. And with the helm, you can protect what matters. Right now, you'll save $50, 5-0 off the personal server visiting thehelm.com slash security now. And I should tell you, these things are really popular. A lot of Security Now listeners are buying them. So currently, they are estimated shipping if you order today by mid-September. So you're going to have to wait a little less than a month, about three weeks, to get your helm. I just want to let you know up that uh, up front. four ninety nine. That includes the $99 first-year subscription to encrypted backups, domain registration, renewal, feature and security updates. Uh, and, of course, you're going to take $50 off thehelm.com slash security now. I love my helm. I love knowing that my email is mine and mine alone. And plus, it looks pretty cool. The helm at thehelm.com slash security now. Uh, they know that a lot of Security Now listeners are very privacy-focused, and that's why they've created this, I think, really great device. Makes it easy. Steve Arino, let's go on with the show. 
So last Tuesday was another busy and important Patch Tuesday. Um, of the 93, no vul- vul- 93 vulnerabilities Microsoft patched, a third of them, 29, are actually more than a third, are rated critical, and 64 were rated important. Um, happily, for a change, none of the vulnerabilities patched last Tuesday were known to be under active attack, nor had any of their details been published publicly. I did see a tweet from someone, but and, and I attempted to follow up, but I couldn't, saying that um, Sandbox Escaper was tweeting again yesterday, but I, I, I looked and there wasn't anything on her GitHub account, and, and I, I didn't further track her down, so I don't know what it was she was tweeting about, but um, but because, of course, she's been responsible for lots of zero days recently. The two previous Patch Tuesdays, what were patched in some cases were zero days being exploited at the time. So in this case, no, but there was still a bunch of stuff. Um, there were four remote code execution bugs in Microsoft's recently troubled remote desktop system. Of course, we talked about the RDP protocol and how with BlueKeep, um, you know, everybody was expecting a worm. I wasn't because it was so easy to exploit. You really didn't need a worm's automation to help you. You could just go log in to somebody else's Bluetooth system. So, uh, you know, unlike the e- the Exum email server vulnerability where it took a week of dribbling out bytes in order to hold the connection long enough for that weird undelivered mail timeout to occur. And then you're able to exploit a, a problem with the server. In this case, you just, you know, say, Hey, I, I want to connect you. And thanks to this vulnerability, the blue keep vulnerability that was possible. Well, now we have four more, two of which are uh, a big concern. However, these are not in the remote desktop protocol, they're in the, the, the sort of the higher level enterprise version, so-called terminal services. So that's RDS, the remote desktop services. That's what enterprises use when, when people want to actually log into a, a, a window instance through terminal services. Um, for, it's sort of a – it's like the professional – enterprise version of remote desktop with remote desktop you can connect to your one windows instance but for example you're logged off of the desktop if you try to log in through remote desktop because when microsoft says oh no 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 only one person could be logged into your you know consumer windows at a time so that happens anyway so there there are those are being – four of those things were found by Microsoft themselves. So it was, they, they found the problems internally when they were taking a closer look at remote desktop in general, no doubt motivated by BlueKeep, thinking, uh, uh, hmm, uh, we haven't looked at remote desktop for a decade. Maybe we should take a look at it again and see if there's <laughs> something else we need to fix. And they found four remote uh, remote code execution problems, two of which were also wormable. Uh, again, not known to be happening out in the wild in this case, and those got fixed last week, a week ago. Um, 
So, and beyond that, there are seven other remote code execution problems which impacted the Chakra scripting engine. That's the original scripting engine in Edge and in, is used in some of Microsoft apps. Uh, of course, they'll be moving away from that as Edge goes over to Chromium. Um, there were also two remote code execution vulnerabilities in Microsoft's Hyper-V uh, virtual machine technology, six remote code executions in Microsoft graphics component, one in Outlook, two in Word, two in the Windows DHCP client, uh, and now you don't want that because that's heavily networked, uh, and also two in the older scripting engine component. Uh, oh, and one in the VB script uh, engine. And I, I also noticed some dialogue somewhere. It, it didn't make it into the podcast formally, but just that VB was VB script was really being sunset at Microsoft. I mean, they were, they, you know, they, they, of course, when JavaScript was happening, they're like, Oh, let's, let's see. What, what do we have? Oh, we have visual basic. Let's, Let's put that, let's turn that into a scripting language and so people can write visual basic script for their browser. And, you know, people did. Uh, and, of course, it lost the battle to, uh, you know, what is now formally, uh, you know, ECMA script, ECMAScript, which is the formalization of browser side scripting, which has now become fully standardized. Um, there's also a patch for a vulnerability in this, as I mentioned, this CTF protocol. Uh, it's not clear how they're going to patch this because this is so badly damaged. And even Tavis is kind of scratching his head thinking, uh, okay. Anyway, uh, the CTF protocol impacts all versions of Windows since XP when this was mysteriously introduced. And we'll talk about that uh, in a, a minute further. Um, so overall, this month's August 2019 Patch Tuesday is large and important. Um, uh, oh, and Microsoft also wanted to remind users that in, in one of their their uh, like what's happening this month notices, they just said, "Oh, by the way, don't forget Windows 7 and Windows Server 2008 R2 will be out of extended extended support." And no longer receiving, and I they didn't say it, but I'll just say free updates because we know that enterprise users will be able to pay an escalating, please keep us on the on the IV drip for what is it uh, one, two, or three years um, continuing. And I'm really interested to see whether Microsoft holds to this plan. I mean, I, I we know how desperately they are working to get people off of 7 and Windows Server 2008 R2, which is, you know, the server version of Windows 7. But it's still, that's still neck and neck with Windows 10. It was at the beginning of the year that they switched places in terms of who was had the lead. But 7 is, hasn't been dropping that much. I mean, some, as, you know, the curtain is trying to fall on it. But again, we've seen Microsoft say, ah, uh, maybe we'll, well, I mean, they've done it with Windows 7. We're now in the extended support period, which they just decided to give to everybody. So uh, we'll see what happens. It's, that's going to be interesting because they just, you know, what will happen, I think, is that over time, machines will die. 
and you can't get a machine run a new machine to run Windows 7 any longer. Windows 7 won't install with USB 3 support. That is, its installer doesn't know about USB 3. So it you have to go you have to jump through some hoops, and I've jumped through those hoops in order to get Windows 7 to set up on a machine with USB 3, which all machines now and for quite some time have had. So it's, you know, what'll happen is I think these machines will just die and they'll get replaced with machines that have Windows 10 for better or for worse. But I encounter people, you know, like in the real world all the time that just hate Windows 10. And and so we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, also, Adobe, SAP, and VMware had uh, respective patch Tuesdays last week. Adobe uh, published fixes for Photoshop, Experience Manager, Acrobat and Reader, Creative Cloud Desktop App, Prelude, Premiere Pro, Character Animator, and After Effects. Uh, And no Flash security updates this month. Maybe it's just because people have, you know, it's like it is a certainly, although it's kind of around, it's a certainly of diminishing impact. There are much larger targets to attack these days, like you know, like all versions of Windows since XP. In the case of this CTF exploit that we'll talk about in a second, um, but what was interesting was there was a problem last Tuesday. Recall how Mike. We talked about this at the beginning of the year. Microsoft announced that they are going to stop co-signing their Windows update packages, which have for quite a while been signed with both SHA-1 and SHA-256 hashes. They decided that July would be the last month where the co-signing would occur and that after July, meaning Starting in August this month, that is to say last Tuesday, updates would only be signed with SHA-256. And that makes sense because, you know, if you're – it made sense to sort of straddle the hashes. But at some point, if you really do believe that the weaker of the two, that is SHA-1 – isn't trustworthy, then that's the one you need to remove, right? Because you're, if, if you co-sign, your signing is only as strong as the weaker of the two signatures if you're going to accept either one. So they had to get rid of it. Um, so a week ago, things broke, uh, although not what Microsoft or anyone else was expecting. Remember that there was an update to Windows, which at the time it was first announced, it wasn't clear whether they were going to push it out automatically because the the wording in their update announcement sort of made it sound like you had to go get it, like you were going to be in trouble if you didn't go get it. But no, they did push it out. And so people would have updated. And that was the update, which then in, which mostly affected Windows 7 because it didn't know about SHA-256 back in the day, uh, which would be required for any updates to be accepted from August on. Well, it turns out that Symantec and Norton, third-party AV tools, have been making it their business to protect 
users from unsigned or malsigned Windows updates, which is kind of weird since that's the whole reason they're signed in the first place, so that Windows can and will and does ro already robustly protect itself from any and all possibly like weird or unsigned updates. I mean, it's just like, it's not going to accept them, but I guess in this like, well, what can we do to justify our existence more? Semantic and Norton said, let's check those. So apparently uh, the Semantic and Norton AV update protectors did not get the memo about the signing changing on Windows Update. And with SHA-1 dropping last month, uh, they were both only checking older SHA-1 signatures, which, of course, broke last week. Both of those AV systems refused to allow their client machines to receive any of Microsoft's valid Patch Tuesday updates. Whoopsie. Uh, uh, there's little that Microsoft can do at this point. You know, it, th that stuff, as we know, is installed in users' machines, and it's blocking Microsoft from doing anything. So uh, it knows that the, when the Microsoft update does know about the inventories of the machines it's updating. So Microsoft has updated Windows Update to stop attempting to send any of last month of this month's last week's updates to any machines containing Symantec or Norton AV, and as a Jeez, consequence, that's a real secure uh, situation. Isn't that a mess, Leo? Oh my God! <laughs> it's just oh, you got an antivirus. Uh, by the way, those are the two most common and most popular, and often included. Yeah as trials on new machines. So it's highly right. likely that a vast number of Windows users already have it, which now, means they're not getting updates. Get a load of what Symantec says. It's this the me most mealy response. Symantec wrote, Symantec has identified the potential uh -huh, uh -huh. for a negative interaction between semantic endpoint protection and the contents of future Windows updates. Aye, aye, aye. Okay, current and future. As a result of the changes in this Microsoft KB, you know, knowledge base, out of an abundance of caution, <laughs> yeah. Leo, yes. uh -huh, Symantec and Microsoft worked together to only allow the update to be visible to versions of semantic endpoint protection that fully support SHA-2 signed Windows executables replaced by this and future updates to Windows 7 SP-1 and Windows 2008 R2 SP-1. What? A, I don't understand what that just said. You just said it, it. I heard it. It was in English. But what does it mean? It said nothing. Semantic <laughs> is actively... Are they going to fix I mean, their problem? Yeah, Semantic is... Oh, Leo, here's the good news. Oh. Semantic is actively working on multiple releases, because this affects everything, multiple releases of Semantic endpoint protection to address 
this situation, which, of course, what you just read explains nothing about. Yeah. This document will be updated. Whew. At, well, we just rather had the software updated, but <laughs> yes, okay. <please. laughs> will be updated as each release becomes available for distribution and include details on how each update can be acquired. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad you and I are not using any of this nonsense. Oh, what um, garbage. <laughs> so it's unconscionable that an antivirus would block Windows updates, period. I guess they're Correct. not. It's just they're using SHA-1, which is broken. And, ha and we've known that for how long? Well, and that's the point is that, well, we've known that all year. Yeah. That, that that this that it was going the SHA one was going was going away at the end of July that everything from August on so they're blocking the signatures and, and again they're not offering any benefit by doing this because Windows won't install an update that it hasn't ver verified so they're just like one additional m monkey in the works or wrench in the monkey or something I don't know there's definitely a wrench somewhere. Uh, it's just amazing. Wow. Uh, by the way, yeah. Symantec and Norton, I think, are the same companies. I know they are. Right. Someone bought the other. Symantec bought it? Norton. I think okay. they rebranded older Norton stuff. No, maybe not. I think they still use Norton for the consumer brand and Symantec for the business brand. Ah. And I think Symantec Endpoint is business. So but anyway, this is terrible. That's that's not what a security yeah, so, software should do. So, right. So you install this protection and it prevents you from obtaining your, you know, your monthly a your IV drip <laughs> of of security patches. It's just incredible. So anyway, for our listeners who are using Symantec or Norton, uh, you keep an eye out. I mean, I'm I'm sure that those packages will. I'm not checked. You no, know, the the link in that uh, note. Was current as of yesterday where they said, oh, uh, we're working on it and we'll update this as updates become available. Well, there were none available yesterday. So we're now, you know, thank goodness that none of the things that Microsoft fixed are like being exploited in the wild or you'd really be in much worse trouble. So I'm sure that Symantec and Norton will update themselves and then – I don't know what. Then maybe users, if you see that, you should go and check for updates. I mean, I'm sure Windows will get around to like pushing those out again. But just as you said, Leo, it's oh. a mess. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then another foul up this month. Microsoft, uh, in that same note where they where they talked about this problem, after installing. Then I'm speaking of a one of the patches from last week's updates. After installing this update, applications that were made using VB6, Visual Basic 6, macros using Visual Basic for applications, and scripts or apps using Visual Basic Scripting Edition, VB Script, may stop responding. And that's actually is one of those, again, will stop responding. And you may, you will receive an, quote, invalid procedure call error. They said this issue is resolved in KB4517297, which is an optional update 
In other words, last Tuesday, they broke Visual Basic and only found out after the fact and said, whoops, and so have now got an update to their update, which unbreaks it. So there's that. <laughs> and while we're on the topics of AV that nobody wants, Kaspersky, it turns out, has for four years since uh, late 2015 been facilitating independent web tracking of every single one of their users. Um, uh, the uh, Both the free and the paid editions have been injecting a snippet of JavaScript into every page, every web page displayed by their users. The JavaScript, and I've got a picture of it in the show notes, which is placed into the pages DOM, the document object model, can therefore be readily seen by and parsed by any other script running on the page. That's the whole point of having a document object model is you, they've, we've standardized the way pages are described. And anybody looking at this little bit of script you've got on the screen right now, Leo, you can see that it's, 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 it is a, it's a script calling out the downloading of over HTTPS from a server gc.kis.v2.scr.kaspersky-labs.com. Then we have forward slash, then a GUID, you know, a graphic, a globally unique ID, then forward slash main.js. So, and then close script. So this little bit of code causes the user's browser to go download main.js from Kaspersky. Well, the, 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 this GUID, this globally unique ID, is the ID from the individual user's instance of Kaspersky. And that GUID is inserted into every page downloaded. And that GUID can be seen by any script running on the page, including advertisers, meaning that since late 2015, any user of Kaspersky has been has been having it embed a their unique ID in every single page and every single ad that they download, making them absolutely trackable. I mean, you, you can't shake this. It's, you know, it's just there. Not to mention the fact that Kaspersky themselves, since every single page you download is fetching this main.js from Kaspersky Labs servers with this unique user tag in the query, and we know that the browser will provide a referrer header telling Kaspersky exactly where and what page who you are is on. They've had the ability to globally track their entire install base everywhere they go on the Internet. We don't know that they were, but that's what this does. And so 
they certainly could have been until it was made public two months ago when they said, oh, uh, okay, we're, we won't do that anymore. So they've changed it to a new ID, which is no longer user unique. It's now Kaspersky version unique. So now what's being transmitted, it's a much less probably source of concern, hopefully, is the, the fact that you're a Kaspersky user and exactly which version of Kaspersky AV you are using. Uh, and Leo, I am so glad that neither of us have any of that crap uh, on our systems. Yeah. No Thank kidding. you anyway. That's just bad behavior. That's terrible. And as somebody's pointed uh, out, I mean, you're announcing that if at very least that you're using this antivirus. So, right. I mean, just, yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable. So what the heck is CTF? Um, <laughs> when I was talking about Windows updates, I mentioned that there'd been a patch to it. Uh, so, you know, what is it? Once again, Google's Tavis Ormandy discovered this buggy protocol, which if hackers or malware, and this has been around since Windows XP when it was introduced, if hackers or malware had already gained a tentative foothold on a user's computer. So this is not a remote vulnerability. This is any Windows app running on anyone's machine. They can use it to take over any app, high-privileged applications, or the entire OS as a whole, Tavis explains. It turns out that CTF, which no one has ever heard of before, is a little-known Microsoft protocol used by all Windows operating systems since XP, right up through 10. And naturally, it's insecure and turns out can be easily exploited. So what is CTF? Nobody knows for sure. We don't know what CTF stands for. Capture Tavis. the flag? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Tav Tavis has, was never able to determine what it means despite rummaging through all Microsoft's documentation. Uh, Continuous so like thermonuclear the fusion? <laughs> That'd be good. Yeah, yeah. What Tavis did so learn was thank you, Karim, that yes. CTF is part of the Windows Text Services Framework. So T of CTF might be text. Well, don't, we don't know. Casper the Friendly um, Protocol? <laughs> but there is a TSF, ta uh, the Text Services Framework. So this is the system that manages the text shown inside Windows and Windows apps. That is Windows itself and Windows applications running on Windows. When users start an app, Windows also starts a CTF client mm. for that app. Interesting. The CTF client receives instructions from a CTF server about the OS system language and the keyboard input methods. So it's it's tied into text services and multi clipboard multi function of some kind. Clipboard. Yeah, that's right. C could be clipboard. Yeah, uh, uh, clipboard text facilitator. Yeah, anyway, something like that. Uh, yeah. If the if the o if the OS input method 
changes from one language to another, then the CTF server notifies all CTF clients who then change the language in each Windows app accordingly in real time. So this whole thing was a hack to allow you to on the fly change the language of the system and suddenly everything would go bloop and we should change. send this Microsoft note to Tavis. It's the collaborative translation framework. Ah, interesting. I want, I mean, it's funny that, that, you know, at the, at the time of his reporting, he was unable to determine what the yeah, heck it was. Yeah. It, yeah. Huh. So Tavis dug into it and he quickly discovered to, unfortunately, not surprisingly, but and, and not, well, yeah, not surprisingly, because it's he, to his shock and dismay that the communications between CTF clients and the CTF servers are not properly authenticated or secured. Or as Tavis put it, quote, there is no access control in CTF. Yeah, because the point Any of it, by the way, it's been deprecated was collaborative ah. translations. So you can submit a sentence translation, others can submit, and then it collaborates, you know, based on, it returns wow. the translated content in its total count from your account. Yeah, it's an API for collaborative translation. So it makes yep. sense. It's a, it is a server. And it's deprecated, but still present because, yeah. you know, five people yeah. are using right. it somewhere. You can't, you can't kill it. <laughs> It was so, only deprecated yeah. last uh, February 2018, so, yeah. Yeah. Any application, any user, even sandboxed processes can connect to any CTF session. Clients are expected to report their thread ID, their process ID, and their main Windows messaging handle. There's no authentication involved, and this is Tavis, no authentication involved, and you can simply lie. Tavis added, so you could connect to another user's active session. I mean, this is complete violation of all containment within Windows. Connect to another user's active session and take over any application or wait for an administrator to log in and compromise their session. An attacker that hijacks another app's CTF session can then send commands to that app, posing as the server normally expected to be the Windows OS, but there's no enforcement of that. Attackers can use this loophole to either steal data from other apps or they can use it to issue commands in the name of those apps. If the apps run with high privileges, then those app actions allow the attacker to take full control over a victim's computer. And according to Tavis, any app or Windows process is up for grabs because of CTF's role to show text inside any app or service, there is a CTF session for literally everything and every user interface element on Windows OS. Uh, to demonstrate the dangers, Tavis recorded a demo in which he hijacked, get this, the CTF session of the Windows login screen which, as we know, Microsoft has made a huge deal about being highly privileged, isolated, and sacrosanct. Thus, Tavis easily demonstrated that everything in Windows is hackable because of CTF. 
I have a link to the Google Project Zero blogspot uh, uh, posting. Tavis uh, titled it Down the Rabbit Hole. Uh, and he, he said toward the end, he said, he concluded, he says, he says, I've implemented this attack in CTF tool, follow the steps here to try it. And there's a, it's on GitHub, a link to CTF tool where it shows you how to achieve this. He, and he concludes, so what does it all mean? Even without bugs, the C and there are bugs, but even without bugs, the CTF protocol allows applications to exchange input and read each other's content. However, there are a lot of protocol bugs that allow taking complete control of almost any other application. It will be interesting, he's writing, to see how Microsoft decides to modernize the protocol. He says, if you want to investigate further, I'm releasing the tool I developed for this project. And then under conclusion, it took a lot of effort and research to reach the point that I could understand enough of CTF to realize it's broken. These are the kind of hidden attack surfaces where bugs last for years. It turns out it was possible to reach across sessions and violate NT security boundaries for nearly 20 years and nobody noticed. So, Tavis. Wow. Yeah. Thank you once again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's anybody who's programmed Windows um, recognizes what a how much danger the whole the whole Windows messaging model creates. I mean, you are able to enumerate processes. You are able to get the messaging cues of other apps. I mean, this is what key, this is what macro play, uh, recorders and players do: is they send keystrokes to apps, causing them to do things. And it's nice when it's your macros that are being sent and your apps, and they're doing what you want them to do. But nothing enforces that in Windows. I mean, so you know, essentially, you really need to make sure nothing gets in because once something has, it's it's game over. So the news as of Friday from Texas was government agencies. Nobody knew what government agencies, but we knew there were 23 of them were all hit with a – well, now we know it's cities. We'll get to that in a minute. It were all simultaneously hit with a well-coordinated, simultaneous – and effective ransomware attack last Friday, August 16th. 23 Texas entities, the majority of which are local governments, were hit by a ransomware attack on Friday that Texas officials say is part of a targeted attack launched by a single threat actor. Details still remain scant about the specific agencies hit by the ransomware attacks, which began on the morning of August 16th, as well as exactly which systems were impacted. However, the Texas Department of Information Resources, DIR, as of Saturday night, did say that responders are actively working with all 
23 entities, and who knows how many were attacked that didn't get infected, but 23 different things, different networks, different agencies. Now we know it's actually 23 cities uh, were brought down by a massive coordinated attack. Um, so uh, this DIR, the Department of Information Resources, is currently working as of Saturday night to bring their systems back online. Uh, and that the state of Texas systems and networks itself were not impacted. So what we do know is that these 23 agencies were knocked offline and presumably encrypted by this simultaneous attack. I checked yesterday in local reporting and like of like, I don't know, the Texas Gazette or something, and it didn't have any more information still. The Texas Department of Information Resources website posted a statement saying that, quote, currently DIR, the Texas Military Department, and Texas A&M University System Cyber Response and Security Operations Center teams are deploying resources to the most critically impacted jurisdictions. Further resources will be deployed as they are requested. When pressed for additional details, the Texas DIR declined to elucidate any further, stating, quote, due to security concerns, unquote, I, I, or read embarrassment, perhaps, saying only that they were smaller local governments. Yes, 23 of them. The DIR did not provide information about which systems are down, how systems were first infected, and the specific amount of ransom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's going to be adding up uh, in their reporting of this threat post reached out to representatives from Dallas, Houston and Austin for comment on whether they were impacted by the attack. While representatives from Dallas and Austin have not yet responded, I wonder if their emails down, <clears throat> a spokesperson from Houston told threat post that as far as we know, Houston has not been affected. I think they would know if they had been. According to a statement sent to Threat Post, quote, the city of Houston is aware that a ransomware attack has affected several local government agencies throughout Texas. We are in contact with the Texas State Operations Center and will monitor the latest developments. Whew. The mayor's office of Homeland Security and the IT Services Department will continue to proactively work to secure and protect the city's assets. However, the DIR said that at this time, and not surprisingly, given what we know, evidence gathering indicates the attacks came from one single threat actor. Alan Liska, who is a, th a threat intel analyst with Recorded Future, we've mentioned, we've spoken of them a number of times. They're, a, 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 you know, in the middle of the thick of things, uh, security firm told Threat Post that the attacks signify an important shift in the ransomware threat model. Typically, state and local governments have been targets of opportunity for ransomware attacks, with the gangs behind these attacks, Ryuk and SamSam, appearing to stumble onto previous state and local government 
targets. However, or that is, you know, stumble previously onto them. However, this instance, this incident, he says, appears to be the first where a string of governments were actively being targeted in an attack. He said this is the first time there's been an attack against several local governments in a state. He says this is big. It's a game changer. This will change the model going forward for attackers, and that will be a problem for governments. Allen also noted that one advantage Texas has is that it has a coordinated incident response. The response team is centralized for cities and counties in emergencies, which makes it easier when there is a problem like this to find and reach out to a main contact. There's someone to call. Um, so as anyway, as I said, I looked for any update as I was putting these notes together yesterday, everyone is being quiet. We're not, they're now saying that it's 23 individual cities across Texas, but that's all we know. And I, <laughs> I shudder to think of, of the ransom that is being requested. I mean, you know, say there are some cities that do have current, current backups in our previous reporting of this over the last few months we've noted that recovering from an attack like this is sometimes more like without paying ransom is sometimes more expensive than if you pay the ransom and you are able to decrypt the systems in place just just to the due to the logistics of of having systems which have been there who knows how old they are, what software they have on them, you know, how, how recent the backups are, whether the backups were online and therefore themselves also got encrypted in the process. It's a mess. I mean, this really is uh, an interesting, um, really significant new problem for, for U.S. municipalities. I mean, it's just not exaggerating to, to, to say that. Um, we have, unfortunately, because, I mean, I guess I understand this, but it's still, it's still unfortunate. The coming demise of extended validation EV certificates, uh, Safari has already removed all EV certificate company info from the address bar where it had been before this most recent major update to iOS and macOS. Most mobile browsers are not showing it because they have scant real estate and they just don't want to take the space for it. Now both Chrome and Firefox browsers for the desktop have announced that they too will soon be removing any EV indication from the main URL UI. Chrome's Google Groups post was titled, quote, Upcoming Change to Chrome's Identity Indicators. And it reads, as part of a series of data-driven changes to Chrome's security indicators, the Chrome Security UX team, user experience team, is announcing a change to the extended validation certificate indicator on certain websites, starting in Chrome 77, on HTTPS websites using EV certificates, 
Chrome currently displays an EV badge containing the name of the EV certificate holder. You know, like mine says, Gibson Research Corp. To the left of the URL bar, starting with version 77, Chrome will move this UI indicator down into the page info, which, of course, you have to click on in order to see, meaning it just might as well not exist. Most people don't even know it's there, which is accessed, they say, by clicking the lock icon. In other words, effectively nullifying its impact. They said, through our own research, and again, this is where I get the, yeah, I understand, through our own research, as well as a survey of prior academic work, the Chrome Security UX team has determined that the UV UI, I'm sorry, the EV, the Extended Validation UI, does not protect users as intended. Users do not appear to make secure choices, such as not entering a password or credit card information, when the UI is altered or removed, meaning it just act actually they never knew what it meant, and maybe they wouldn't have cared even if they did. Uh, as would be necessary, they write, for EVUI to provide meaningful protection. Further, the EV badge takes up valuable real estate, can, present, can, can present actively confusing company names in prominent UI, and interferes with Chrome's product direction towards a neutral rather than a positive display for secure connections. And I'll, I'll intervene here just a moment to say, in other words, as we know, secure is intended to be the norm now going forward, and non-secure sites are what will then be denigrated for like something say not like as as we know the, the the UIs will begin saying not secure proactively whereas if they don't say that then it's secure and that will then just be the de facto anyway they said because of these problems and its limited utility we believe it belongs better in page info meaning if somebody cares and of course who does Altering the EVUI is part of a wider trend among browsers to improve their security UI surfaces in light of recent advances in understanding, in understanding of this problem space. They write, in 2018, Apple announced a similar change to Safari that coincided with the release of iOS 12 and macOS 10.14 and has been implemented as such ever since. And shortly following Chrome's announcement, Mozilla also announced that starting in Firefox 70, they will be removing the EV certificate's identity information from the address bar. Mozilla wrote, in desktop Firefox 70, we intend to remove extended validation EV indicators from the identity block, that left-hand side of the URL bar, which is used to display security, privacy information. Actually, mine's, I'm noticing, mine's getting kind of full of little icony things. I, I had like five of them this morning when I was looking at something. Um, you know, the half shield and, and uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, 
they, they said we will add additional EV information to the identity panel. Uh huh. Thank you. Instead, effectively reducing the exposure of EV information to users while keeping it easily accessible. And once again, yes, where nobody will notice. They wrote the effectiveness of EV has been called into question numerous times over the last few years. There are serious doubts whether users notice the absence of positive security indicators and proof of concepts have been pitting EV against domains for phishing. Um, more recently, it's been shown that EV certificates with colliding entity names can be generated by choosing a different jurisdiction. What that means for anyone who's interested is, for example, uh, it would be possible. For, I can't remember the example that was given, but, you know, for example, it would be possible for a Gibson Research Corp to be incorporated out of California because I'm a California Corp in some other state. Nothing prevents that. And that's their real that's their real name. They can't get GRC.com. But they could get something and then in the, you know, and get an EV certificate for their real name. And so it would show Gibson Research Corp, Corp just as mine does, and it would be a valid EV certificate. So that's what both Chrome, both Google and Mozilla mean when they say, yeah, you know, it's not really clear what it means to show the company name because – there, you can have multiple companies with the same name. So they, and then they said, 18 months have passed since then, and no changes to address this problem have been identified. They said, the Chrome team recently removed EV indicators from the UR bar in Canary and announced their intent to ship this change in Chrome 77. Safari is also no longer showing the EV entity name instead of the domain name in their URL, URL bar, distinguishing EV only by the green color. Edge is also no longer showing EV entity name in their URL bar. So, RIP EV. I think that pretty much, uh, you know, given that it is the EV certificates are significantly more expensive for uh, website domains to obtain. Uh, in I, I read a bunch of other reporting of this that you know wasn't necessary to put into this this relative long summary. Uh, but for example, uh, it is substantially more difficult for a, an EV certificate holder to to prove and need to continuously update and reprove their identity. You know, I do it because it was a badge of honor to have an EV showing. I, I wanted to, you know, uh, that's going away. So uh, I, I think, you know, it and it's, uh, it's unfortunate because uh, I'll be talking in a minute about Google's efforts to work to shorten uh, certificate lifetimes uh, rather than to deal with revocation. But Leo, we're about halfway through, so let's take our second break and Indeed. then we will uh, return. What will replace EVs? I mean, we, we've been talking J about just, EVs for a long so time. We, 
Yeah, so we have the, the lowest level are what the ACME protocol with Let's Encrypt and other uh, providers who now support ACME. Um, that's, the do that, that's the domain validation, the DV certs. What is but what's between DV and EV is OV, which is the organization verification. And so that's that that's what those who don't use ACME to auto generate certificates. That's what the, those of us who still want someone, you know, the, the A higher level the, the, of verification. Right. Right. But you, yeah. That the doesn't actual, solve the duplicate name problem. No, it doesn't. And Nothing there has been no, no, you can't no, solve that. No, because you can't, it would be inappropriate for who, you know, any certificate authority to say you are the one and only official GRC in all the world. That's, right. They don't have the right to do that. Right. So I think that that's going to be a given that problem forever. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's take a break. I want to talk a little bit about NetScout, visibility without borders. We talk so much on the show about advanced persistent threats, the notion that a bad guy could be in your network right now snooping around. They don't announce themselves. It's not, it's not the old days where they deface your website and run. <laughs> We're talking about advanced persistent threats, the, the folks who were inside the Starwood reservation system for years Years before Marriott figured it out, or the Sony Picture Entertainment System for months, exfiltrating data galore before Sony figured it out. It'd be so nice to be able to know if you have been hacked, right? It's not a question of if you're going to be hacked. It's a question of when they're going to try to knock on your door. And you sure would like to know. You'd sure like to know if there's somebody in there. Once they get past your defenses, what's the first thing a hacker does? They cover their tracks. And then they infiltrate your network systematically, looking for passwords, looking for data, looking for ways to shut your business down. And they're not going to do it out loud. That's why you need NetScout. The packets on the network are the source of all the information you need to know. If you can, if you can monitor those packets, you'll know if data is being exfiltrated. You'll know where the hackers are going, what they're stealing. That's where NetScout comes in. Their smart data approach gives you high resolution, consistent, continuous monitoring everywhere inside the IT infrastructure in any workload. Literally, it's named Visibility Without Borders, and that's what you get. NetScout's solution detects the most comprehensive array of threats, provides visibility anywhere the hacker goes, even to the public cloud. That's why it's without borders. With NetScout's visibility without borders, you get the visibility you need to see and across any network, data center, cloud, 5G even, and more. Rethink the way security is delivered in your digitally transformed business. Get a clearer view, and you need it, at NetScout.com. NetScout, N-E-T-S-C-O-U-T, NetScout.com. Visibility without borders. Steve? So, uh, as Chrome moves forward, uh, things change. Uh, they have posted their intent to remove and deprecate FTP support. Uh, and again, it's like, this is like, okay, fine. <laughs> How many people really use your browser for FTP? If you're serious I kind of forgot right? it was still there. Yeah. You know, when have you seen an FTP, FTP URL? FTP slash slash, right? You can, yes, exactly. Yes. So 
They said the current implementation in Google Chrome has no support for encrypted connections, FTPS, nor proxies. Usage of FTP in the browser is sufficiently low that it is no longer viable to invest in improving the existing FTP client. In addition, more capable FTP clients are available on all affected platforms. Google Chrome 72 and on removed support for fetching document sub-resources over FTP and rendering of top-level FTP resources. Currently, navigating to FTP URLs result in showing a directory listing or a download depending on the type of resource. In other words, that the sub document sub-resource, meaning like thing, components of documents. So from, from Chrome 72, you could not have a web page that might have, for example, been loading a picture. I don't know why you would, but you know, normally it's HTTPS colon slash slash and then the URL to you know dot JPEG. Well, you could have had that picture on an FTP server and in the document, in the page, it would have said FTP colon slash slash. But anyway, that so that's that was removed from Chrome 72 onward. Those are document sub-resources, but you could still in the URL bar, you could put FTP colon slash slash, you know, uh, ftpforever.com and up would come the directory of the, the, that, that root, that directory of the FTP server. So they said a bug in Google Chrome 74 resulted in dropping support for accessing FTP URLs over HTTP proxies. Proxy support for FTP was removed entirely in Google Chrome 76. So rather, you know, there was a bug. They said, let's just kill it. Let's not fix it. No one cares. Finally, they said remaining capabilities of Google Chrome's FTP implementation are restricted to either displaying a directory listing or downloading a resource over unencrypted connections. We would like to deprecate and remove this remaining functionality rather than maintain an insecure FTP implementation. So to that end, Chrome will soon be getting a new disable FTP flag, which will initially not be enabled at first, meaning that enable, meaning that disable FTP won't be active. So this, remi this remaining shred of FTP functionality will still be present, but over time, we can expect them to migrate that away so that it will eventually be enabled. Then that remaining bit of FTP won't be enabled by default. Those who do want it will be able to turn it on, I'm sorry, will be able to turn off the disable, thus enabling it, but that'll really be a clue that they ought to go find themselves another client. So anyway, FTP is going and no one is going to miss it. Uh, unlike shorter certificate lifespans, um, two months ago in June, Google's Ryan Sleevy, who's a good guy, by the way, uh, introduced a ballot measure during the, uh, the CAB conference proposing to 
amend one of the documents with you know removing lines and adding lines to reduce the maximum browser security certificate lifetime to essentially one year a little you know one year plus a little bit of fudge so that you don't have a problem with overlap basically a year um, right now EV certificates are two o OV certificates are three so that for for those using OV certificates, the more popular certificate, that triples the rate at which certificates must be reissued, which is annoying because the crypto is secure. I mean, there's no reason. Uh, well, okay, except there is kind of one. Anyway, the measure was titled Ballot SCXX. Oh, God, I love this. Improve certificate lifetimes. That's right. It's an improvement. Uh, just the fact that Google said improve certificate lifetimes when reduce certificate lifetimes is what they really mean demonstrates that they clearly recognize that certificate revocation is still broken. My first thought upon seeing that this was in the news was, of course they are, since as our longtime listeners of this podcast know, that is those who have been listening for at least five years – uh, Google's Chrome browser certificate revocation is not completely and utterly broken. Rather, it is non-existent for all practical purposes. Chrome doesn't even bother checking non-EV certificates with their, their proprietary CRL. That was supposed to be certificate revocation list CRL set system. And now, of course, they're working to kill EV certificates, too, so they won't even need to be checking those in the future. For some unfathomable reason, back in the dawn of Chrome, someone must have made the decision that since certificate revocation was currently imperfect, it was therefore of no value at all. So unlike every other browser on the planet, Chrome chose to simply ignore it. It was, at the time, I think, an irresponsible and unconscionable choice. You know, oh, sure, they have their own web browser rigorously checking any and all of their own properties certificates. You don't dare mess with a Google-derived cert, as we have often noted. But they don't bother to check anyone else's, only their own. When I clearly demonstrated this five years ago, back in May of 2014, by deliberately creating a revoked certificate, which Chrome gleefully accepted, I mean, it was it revoked. And Chrome said, ah, fine. Not a lot. The, the, the other browsers said, oh, wait, this is revoked. No, you can't go there. We won't show you that page. Chrome said, yeah, come on in. What happened? Google manually added that one certificate's signature to Chrome's short certificate blacklist. So I created another, which was once again honored because, you know, why not? Um, and that one they didn't bother blacklisting. I haven't looked recently. I, so, you know, I'm sure that this and I annoyed them by bringing attention to this original sin of Chrome's, it wasn't my intention to annoy them, but I did hope that by bringing this to light, we might see this fixed since back 
when Chrome was becoming more and more popular and influential, it mattered. And of course, it matters now. Um, all of the other browsers were doing the right thing. And again, yes, the existing system was imperfect. Um, but it made more sense then, and it still does now, to fix it rather than to simply ignore it. Um, I haven't revisited any of this since then, so that's been a little over five years. But anyone who is interested in that research and coverage can find those original pages at grc.com slash revocation. Um, and when I was working on this back then, doing that research, I encountered the perfect solution to the problem, which is known as OCSP stapling. OCSP is, that stands for Online Certificate Status Protocol. Certificates contain the URL of their issuer's OCSP server, which allows the certificate, I'm sorry, which allows the current instantaneous status of the revocation state of the certificate to be verified. This enables web browsers to query certificates OCSP servers to receive a completely up to the instant check on the current validity of the certificate. The trouble is this has been an emerging standard and in the beginning OCSP servers could not always be counted on to reply quickly if at all. So this either slowed things down while the browsers waited, as something browsers really hate to do, or browsers were forced to take the position of trusting unless denied. In other words, failing open rather than failing closed. But it turns out a perfect solution does and has existed for years. It's called OCSP stapling. When OCSP stapling is used, the web server that's offering and asserting the validity of the certificate, of it itself obtains and caches an updated and signed assertion of the current validity of the certificate and then staples that to the certificate which it offers to the web browser. The web browser checks the signature of the certificate and of the recent OCSP validity assertion. So think of the power this gives certificate authorities. Now they can revoke a certificate and it will become untrusted instantly and with zero overhead introduced by browsers and no browser delay. In fact, two years ago, in July of 2017, Cloudflare's Nick Sullivan blogged with the title, quote, High Reliability OCSP Stapling and Why It Matters, unquote. And I won't go through the whole posting because it's very lengthy, but interesting. I have the, the link to it in the show notes. But he began to, in, to introduce the concept at Cloudflare, our focus is making the Internet faster and more secure. Today, we are announcing a new enhancement to our HTTPS service, High Reliability OCSP Stapling. This feature is a step towards enabling an important security feature on the web, certificate revocation checking. Reliable OCSP stapling also improves connection times 
by up to 30% in some cases. In this post, we'll explore the importance of certificate revocation checking in HTTPS, which again, let's just to rub it in, which Chrome doesn't bother to do, comma, anyway, the challenges involved in making it reliable and how we built a robust OCSB stapling service. Anyway, for anyone who's interested, the link is there. So today, OCSP stapling is universally available. Windows Server supports it, Apache, Nginx, all the various CDNs, uh, AWS, and other web providers. So there is no longer any good reason not to simply make it support mandatory in the future. Um, incredibly, as I've said, Chrome doesn't perform any useful revocation checking. So to minimize the exposure to revoked certificates languishing for their current up to three-year period, their solution is to shorten the certificate's maximum life. They want, Google wants, all certificates to die more rapidly through their natural self-expiration. But of course, this still leaves us with a big mess and a gaping hole for exploitation because you still have a year. You know, it really feels as though Google is working to incrementally chip away at the certificate authority model with the aim of eventually bringing us to this ACME protocol where we know nothing about a certificate, nothing, where the certificate essentially makes no assertion other than the fact that one automated web server requested and received a domain validating certificate from some ACME server. Essentially, all it then gives you is encryption. It gives you privacy, but it gives you nothing in terms of who the certificate is being issued for because it's now just an automated handshake. And you know, that doesn't feel like the right future for the internet. Moving forward, it, it seems so clear that we're going to need more assurance, more uh, more than just encryption. We need to know who it is we're talking to for our connections on the internet, right? Um, and, and this is going in the other direction. We're going to really need to know who the server is and, and like have, have some reason to, to trust the entity that's there rather than a bot that issued the certificate in response to an API request. It seems to me this is the vital service that certificate, that certificate authorities have always provided. It's not perfect, no, uh, but neither was OCSP, and that has been fixed completely with stapling. Um, there's just been no pressure to implement OCSP stapling. So it seems to me that rather than discarding certificate authorities, which seems to be the direction that Chrome is wanting to go, they're, because they're not doing any revocation checking, they're wanting to just chip away at certificate life, um, they, that certificate authorities provide this vital service of, of, of having done some some due diligence about 
who it is the certificate that the certificate is for. Now we've talked about alternatives. Someday the Dane protocol, the you know DNS based authentication of named entities, that might happen. But DNS needs to be made significantly stronger with DNSSEC, which would need to be universally supported before that could happen. So it seems to me that the much, the much more practical proximate solution is to move OCSP stapling, which is done. It's, it exists. It's ready. We ought to move that to the forefront by visually rewarding in the browser's UI those sites whose certificates carry a freshly stapled OCSP assertion. That would give sites an incentive to implement readily available OCSP stapling. Basically, they just have to turn it on, uh, which would it would give us true zero overhead certificate revocation checking to solve the revocation problem once and for all. And then, yes, we need to figure out how to how, how to strengthen the the assertion that a a manually certificate authority issued certificate is able to make. But it seems to me going forward, it's crazy to imagine an internet where you've got secure connections and you have no idea who you're connecting to. I, I just, that makes no sense to me. So, uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves uh, in the future. Um. Netflix, as I mentioned, has been uh, providing some security oversight, which the first time I saw it, we talked with there, there was something else a few months ago where I said, wait, what Netflix? But yeah, so this is the second time uh, this is happening. Uh, they took a look at the HTTP slash two HTTP two protocol, some actual implementations for a long time. We've had HTTP 1.1. And we've talked about HTTP2's many new features previously. Um, And just to give us our listeners a quick short summary, whereas a single HTTP 1.1 connection makes a request and waits for a reply, then it might make another request during the same connection or it might terminate it and open another. With HTTP2, what we have is an inherently powerful, very powerful multiplex connection supporting multiple simultaneous overlapping streams, which support multiple simultaneous overlapping queries and responses, differing stream priorities and even the ability for the server to see what things are being requested and to anticipate future not yet requested by the client assets and send them ahead, but even before they're being requested. I mean, it really does feel over-engineered, but it's arguably what today's massive web pages require. And you could imagine some, I mean, these features are present even though they're not even being used yet. I don't, I don't even know of a server that is uh, heuristically 
analyzing the requests and looking at previous requests of the, of the same stuff and noticing what replies were always being being uh, followed up and then saying, oh, well, if you ask for this, you're probably going to be asking for these things and let's send them ahead. So uh, the trouble is all those features, and as I said, many of which are not even being used today, are in the spec. They're in the protocol. So you got to build them uh, in order for them to be used if you're going to say that you're HTTP2 and everybody wants to be that now. And they are, it turns out, extremely tricky to implement. Netflix took a look at a number of actual real-world implementations of HTTP2 deployed in the field and found eight different ways to completely clog up the pipes and bring even a burly web server to its knees with just a few carefully chosen packets. What Netflix wrote was, in their overview, Netflix has discovered several resource exhaustion vectors affecting a variety of third-party HTTP2 implementations. These attack vectors can be used to launch DOS as, you know, now this is not the flooding style denial of service. This is a resource depletion. Back in, remember back in the early days, um, you could, you could just send a server uh, sequence, you know, SYN, S-Y-N packets, and it would start setting up connections which you never followed through on and exhaust its ability to create any more connections so that normal visitors coming were unable to get a connection. It, it, the, the, it would just return a server busy or or just like, you know, a, a spinning... Um, a, a spinning wheel rather than um, uh, give, giving you a connection. Not because you were flooding it with traffic, but just you'd depleted the resources at the server end. This is like that. So they said these attack vectors can be used to launch DOS attacks against servers that support HTTP2 communication. Netflix worked with Google and CERT to coordinate disclosure to the internet community. Today, a number of vendors have announced patches to correct this suboptimal behavior. And by the way, that was uh, there was a bunch of those in last Tuesday's Patch Tuesday from Microsoft. While we haven't detected these vulnerabilities in our o o open source packages, we are issuing the security advisory to document our findings and to further assist the Internet security community in remediating these issues. So under impact, they said there are three broad areas of information security, confidentiality. So that's information cannot be read by unauthorized people. Integrity, information cannot be changed by unauthorized people. And availability, information and systems are available when you want them. All of the changes announced today, they wrote, are in the availability category. These HTTP2 vulnerabilities do not allow an attacker to leak or modify information. Rather, they allow a small number of low-bandwidth malicious sessions to prevent connection participants from doing additional work. 
these attacks are likely to exhaust resources such that other connections or processes on the same machine may also be impacted or crash. HTTP2, which was defined in RFCs 7540 and 7541, represents a significant change, they wrote, from HTTP 1.1. There are several new capabilities, including header compression and multiplexing of data from multiple streams, which makes this attractive to the user community. To support these new features, HTTP 2 has grown to encompass some of the complexity of a layer three transport protocol, meaning the lower level protocol where there's a lot more going on than just get a connection, ask for something, get the results and disconnect. So they said data is now carried in binary frames. There are both per connection and per stream windows that define how much data can be sent. There are several ICMP-like control messages, ping, reset, and settings frames, for example, which operate at the HTTP2 connection layer. And there's a fairly robust concept of stream prioritization. So what did they find? The description of the eight CVEs will give us enough of a feel for it. They said that they wrote many of the attack vectors we found and which were fixed today are variants on a theme. A malicious client asks the server to do something which generates a response, but the client refuses to read the response. This exercises the server's queue management code. Depending on how the server handles its queues, the client can force it to consume excess memory and CPU while processing its requests. So there are eight CVEs, and I'll just sort of run through their names and a brief description. So there's 9511, the data dribble. They, they wrote, the attacker requests a large amount of data from a specified resource over multiple streams. They manipulate the window size and the stream priority to force the server to queue the data in one byte chunks. Depending on how efficiently this data is queued, this can consume excess CPU, memory, or both, potentially leading to a denial of service. Then we have the ping flood. The attacker sends continual pings to an HTTP2 peer, causing the peer to build an internal queue of responses. Depending on how efficiently this data is queued, this can consume excess CPU memory or both, potentially leading to a denial of service. Then we have the resource loop. The attacker creates multiple request streams and continually shuffles the priority of the streams in such a way that causes substantial churn to the priority tree. Once again, consumes blah, blah, blah. Reset flood. The attacker opens a number of streams and sends an invalid request over each stream that should solicit a stream of reset stream frames from the peer. Depending on how the peer queues the reset stream frames, this can consume excess blah, blah, blah. Then we have the settings flood. The attacker sends a stream of settings frames to the peer. 
since the RFC requires that the peer reply with one acknowledgement per settings frame, an empty settings frame is almost equivalent in behavior to a ping, depending upon how efficiently, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Another denial of service. The zero-length headers leak. The attacker sends a stream of headers with a zero-length header name and zero-length header and value, optionally Huffman encoded into a one-byte or zero-length headers. Some imp implementations allocate memory for these headers and keep the allocation alive until the session dies. This can consume excess memory, potentially leading to a denial of service. Then we have the internal data buffering, and similarly, and the empty frames flood, and so forth. So anyway, um, uh, Netflix exercised existing implementations, found many of them wanting, and uh, set up, got eight CVEs, uh, coordinated the disclosure, uh, responsibly disclosed these problems to the various vendors of HTTP2 supporting servers, Microsoft among them. Microsoft fixed it last Tuesday. Presumably the other guys have or will. Uh, and uh, we now have a, an improvement as a consequence in the actual implementation of HTTP2. A, uh, I mean, it is a incredibly complex protocol. But once the implementations get implemented and have been pounded on by researchers like uh, this guy at Netflix, uh, we'll have a, you know, the, the potential for uh, a much better utilization of the bandwidth between browsers and clients, which uh, we know everybody, especially Google, wants as they move toward web-based, you know, browser-based uh, ap applications. Yeah. Hey, can I put in a little plug for Friday's uh, triangulation? I think you'll be interested in this. We've got yeah, please. Yan Ju is lined up. She's uh, currently chief security officer at Brave, which is the privacy browser mm. I've talked about built on Chromium. Right. She helped build HTTPS everywhere, secure drop, let's encrypt. Uh, really interesting person. She's also a DJ. She just performed at DEF CON. And uh, she's going to be our guest on Triangulation this Friday. I'll be there uh, at Bcrypt. You know Bcrypt. At, uh, yeah. Yeah. I should have probably just said Bcrypt. More people know her by her name, uh, by her handle, Bcrypt, than anybody else. Um, we'll be talking. She was a technology fellow at uh, the EFF as well. Um, Very cool. Dropped out of high school. Got her bachelor's from MIT in physics. <laughs> it's an interesting mix, isn't it? Love it. Yeah. Love it. So uh, really excited. Former maintainer of HTTPS Everywhere, uh, co-creator of Packet City. Really an amazing uh, person. Uh, 11.30 a.m. Pacific, 2.30, or what is that, 1.30, 2.30 uh, Eastern Time this coming Friday. I'll be talking to Bcrypt. That'll be a great triangulation. Yeah, yeah she'll be fascinating. Sorry, I didn't so, mean to interrupt. Oh, no, I'm glad you did. I'm sure our listeners will be interested. I, I definitely yeah. will be, too. Yeah. Uh, I got a tweet from a David Feese who said, traveling from Phoenix on Thursday to hear your squirrel talk. Oh. Looking forward to meeting you. Nice. Longtime enjoyer of Security Now. Um, and just as a reminder, two bits. Um, I am speaking the 22nd in two days, Thursday, to the Orange County chapter of OWASP. Uh, and uh, 
I have the the link to the uh, meetup.com event. Uh, and also remember, I mentioned it last week, but Leo, you were not there. Uh, well, you were elsewhere. Um, uh, grc.com slash calendar is the link to the three upcoming OWASP presentations. Nice. The first one in two days here in Orange County, Southern California. And then I've got the one in Dublin, Ireland, followed by Gothenburg, Sweden uh, in uh, in late September. So, And I know that uh, I, I'm uh, Rasmus uh, Vind, who did the squirrel implementation for uh, Zenforo. I think I'm going to get to meet him in Sweden. And I'm going to get to meet uh, Jeff, uh, who did the iOS uh, implementation of Squirrel. He's going to come to to Dublin. So uh, I'm. it's going to be great. I'm going to get to meet lots of people. Andrews, is it Gothenburg or Gothenburg? Gothenburg. So okay. I hope you no. get it right. Jotunborg. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. You're going to Jotunborg. I just, just, just wanted you to know. <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, also, By the way, you'll be talking about Squirrel at our presentation in Boston, too, and that'll be another opportunity for people to yeah, see cool. you. Yeah, cool. Cool. Um, uh, I also, uh, also last week I explained, but I wanted to make sure that our, our listeners knew that that two weeks ago we did Steve's File Sync Journey, on episode 734, which, Leo, you and I will be pre-recording before my trip. Oh, I'm to, good. This was a good idea because we wanted to make something a little bit green, evergreen. Yeah, yes. This will be exactly. great. Yes. Exactly. Yes. That was, that was episode 734 will be Steve's file sync conclusions. Uh, I've been keeping up with Twitter. I've been keeping up with the mail. Uh, I Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, it's... I, <laughs> I, I now I'm an expert on sync thing. I, I even set it up on a Raspberry Pi and used R clone and mount in order to get sync thing to sync to Dropbox just as an experiment so that it wasn't just peer to peer, but it was also to the cloud and uh, been playing with sync.com uh, and everybody else's, I mean, just a whole bunch of things. So, and I'm happy to say, the things are beginning to gel. I'm, I'm, I'm. I think I'm developing sort of a. I mean, all of our needs are different, and so there isn't one solution for everybody. But I think I'll be able to present an updated sort of state of the where we are with applications and services uh, in a, and a, how they can be knit together. Uh, in some cases, in some interesting ways uh, that probably haven't been before. So uh, that's a, a few weeks away, episode 734. Um, and, you know, this is our, our birthday, uh, Security Now's birthday, and this is also the, the second anniversary of my first date with Lori is approaching. So I, I, so I went looking now for— Now you know it's serious if you remember that. That's good. That's well, a good sign. I, we were wanting to celebrate the, nice. uh, the second anniversary of our Aww. first date, so I went looking for the exact date— from our early email correspondence, and I found it. And right next to it was a note from a Spinrite user, and I thought, oh. So I read it, and it was one of those little heart warmers. So I just thought I would reshare. I did, I'm sure, two years ago. This is from Jan Fitzmorris. He said the subject was another success story, Spinrite data recovery. 
He wrote to Dear Steve and GRC team. He said, I purchased Spinrite a few years ago and have been using it to keep my drives in good health. I personally have never had to use it for data recovery. Well, of course, because he's using it preemptively. He said, however, a friend asked for my help this week because her laptop would no longer boot to the login screen. Her laptop contained the only copy of pictures and videos of the first two years of her daughter's life. It wasn't looking good for the patient. When I plugged the drive into an external dock, no OS would recognize the drive. I used my dedicated PC for Spinrite, plugging in the drive and ran level two. Success. We plugged the drive into the dock and were able to recover all pictures and videos, over 70 gigabytes. Whoa. Needless to say, my friend will now seriously consider a backup solution. And he's, he says, I'm hoping she will buy her own copy of Spinrite to show her gratitude for this amazing product. Thanks again for all your hard work and research. Love the Security Now podcast as well. I've been listening. He says, I've been a listener since 2015. And Jan, maybe you're still listening. And here it is, 2019. So anyway, <laughs> thank you nice. for the nice little walk down memory lane. Uh, a stroke yes. from the past. Oh, we don't have an ad here, so have your cup of coffee. But we will continue. I just did. <laughs> we yep. will continue on. Just needed to take a sip. I was dry. So this paper, the following paper, was included in the proceedings of the 28th Usenix Security Symposium last week in Santa Clara, California. The paper's full title is The Knob is Broken, Exploiting Low Entropy in the Encryption Key Negotiation of Bluetooth, BR slash EDR. Now, key negotiation of Bluetooth is K-N-O-B, thus knob. Uh, three security researchers reported on their analysis of more than 14 different Bluetooth chips from different vendors. Uh, if anyone is interested in the 16-page PDF, I have the link in the show notes. So first of all, Bluetooth BR slash BDR, that's basic Bluetooth. That stands for basic rate slash enhanced data rate, the original Bluetooth protocol, sometimes referred to as Bluetooth Classic. Um, for example, to distinguish it from Bluetooth low energy or something. That's present in more than, I mean, who knows how many, a billion, uh, more than a billion Bluetooth-enabled devices. So the abstract of their paper explains, sort of sets this up. They said, we present an attack on the Bluetooth key negotiation protocol of Bluetooth BR slash EDR. The attack allows a third party without knowledge of any secret material, such as link and encryption keys, to make two or more victims agree on an encryption key with only one byte of entropy. Yes, eight bits. Not many. Such low entropy enables the attacker to then easily brute force the negotiated encryption keys, decrypt the eavesdropped 
ciphertext and inject valid encrypted messages in real time. The attack is stealthy because the encryption key negotiation is transparent to the Bluetooth users. The attack is standards compliant because all Bluetooth BDR EDR versions are required to support encryption keys. Now, this is the hard part that is just difficult to believe. All Bluetooth versions are required to support encryption keys with entropy between 1 and 16 bytes and do not secure the key negotiation protocol. As a result, the attacker completely breaks Bluetooth security without being detected. We call our attack key negotiation of Bluetooth, knob. The attack targets the firmware of the Bluetooth chip, Bluetooth chip, because the firmware, the Bluetooth controller, implements all the security features of Bluetooth BDR or BR slash EDR. As a standards compliant attack, it is expected to be effective on any firmware that allows the specification and on any device using a vulnerable firmware. We describe how to perform the knob attack and we implement it. We evaluate our implementation on more than 14 Bluetooth chips from popular manufacturers such as Intel, Broadcom, Apple, and Qualcomm. Our results demonstrate that all tested devices are vulnerable to the knob attack. We discuss countermeasures to fix the Bluetooth specification and its implementation, and that's the beginning of their 16-page paper. Um, CERT did a kind of a friendly uh, explainer for this that I thought I would share. CERT's vulnerability in notice, they use the, out, the common Alice and Bob as the parties wishing to communicate securely and Charlie in the role of attacker. They said, to establish an encrypted connection, two Bluetooth devices must pair with each other and establish a link key that is then used to generate the encryption key. For example, assume that there are two controllers attempting to establish a connection, Alice and Bob. After authenticating the link key, Alice proposes that she and Bob use 16 bytes of entropy. This number N could be between 1 and 16 bytes. Bob can either accept this reject this or abort the negotiation or, or and re reject this and abort the negotiation or propose a smaller value. Bob may wish to propose a smaller N value because he does not support the larger number of bytes proposed by Alice. After proposing a smaller amount, Alice can accept it and request to activate link layer encryption with Bob, which Bob can accept. They write, an attacker, Charlie, could force Alice and Bob to use a smaller N by intercepting Alice's proposal, uh, uh, Alice's proposed, I'm sorry, Alice's proposal request to Bob and changing N. Charlie could lower N to as low as one byte which Bob would subsequently accept 
since Bob supports one byte of entropy and it is within the range of the compliant values. Charlie could then intercept Bob's acceptance message to Alice and change the entropy proposal to one byte, which Alice would likely accept because she may believe that Bob can only support a, a value N of one. Thus, both Alice and Bob would accept N of one and inform the Bluetooth hosts that encryptive, an encryption is active without acknowledging or realizing that N is lower than either of them initially intended it to be. My key is 43. <laughs> <laughs> so what we have here, obviously, and we've encountered this many times through this the 15 or the 14, the now completed 14 years of this podcast, another classic cryptographic security downgrade attack. Um, it's amazing that Bluetooth is this mature and that we are only now noticing this oversight. Under impact, CERT notes, an unauthenticated adjacent attacker can force two Bluetooth devices to use as low as one byte of entropy. This would make it easy for an attacker to brute force as it reduces the total number of possible keys to try and would give them the ability to decrypt all of the traffic between the devices during that subsequent session. And here's the really nutty part. The researchers note the following about halfway through their 16-page paper, because I read the whole thing, and I, and I was just like, <laughs> just like, you're kidding me. Well, I'm not surprising, but they did say this, quote, we do not see any reason to include the encryption key negotiation protocol in the specification of Bluetooth. Yeah, why would anybody want that? From our experiments presented in Section 5, we observe that if two devices are not attacked, they always use it in the same way. A device always proposes 16 bytes of entropy and the other always accepts it. Furthermore, the entropy reduction does not improve runtime performance because the size of the encryption key is fixed to 16 bytes even when its entropy is reduced. In other words, this was just, again, over-engineering. Someone said, hey, let's add a pre-link a pre negotiation encryption key negotiation to allow the endpoints to negotiate down the amount of entropy. Now, I mean, okay, was this the NSA who was secretly participating in some committee? Because this is nuts. I mean, this is loony. Uh, anyway, it's what we have. And so... Uh, a bunch of Bluetooth stacks are now being busily updated. Essentially, the, the, the problem is this is not the software. This is the firmware because this is all being done by the Bluetooth controllers. So so we're going to need the Bluetooth, the, the Bluetooth software to update the firmware in the Bluetooth controllers to no longer accept uh, entropy low values. I mean, really – 
since these guys have never found a, a single instance in their testing where 16 did not work, where 16 bytes of entropy wasn't enough, that's what everybody should use. They're, the point, the whole point was, and this is why they said, we do not see any reason to include the encryption key negotiation protocol in the specification. That's the protocol that allows the negotiation down from 16 to 1 of the entropy. It should just not be there. Nobody has a problem with 256 bits. So that's what it should have always been. Crazy. And of course, our longtime listeners will recall that I have several times observed that there is a large, though brief, period of inherent vulnerability during Bluetooth pairing. You have two unauthenticated devices. That is, they don't know who each other is. You're, they're just near each other, and they're say, you're saying go at the same time. So you have two unauthenticated devices hoping to perform a secure negotiation. It's simply not possible to do that securely without some covert out-of-band channel. It's just not. So I recommended, and our listeners may recall, that if someone really needed Bluetooth security, that they should stand out in the middle of a completely deserted parking lot to perform the pairing and hope that no one is aiming any high-gain antennas at them. Because that's the only way you can do this. I mean, maybe if you really wanted to, just bring a large, large roll of tinfoil, wrap yourself in tinfoil, and then pair your devices under your tinfoil cone of silence, and, and you'd be good to go. But otherwise, I mean, the problem is it's super convenient to, to pair you know, to make a device discoverable and the other guy, the other device sees it. But it's it's inherently an unauthenticated pairing process. Uh, and there isn't any way to make it absolutely secure unless, as I said, you use some sort of out-of-band channel. You know, where, for example, one device has a screen and displays a, a, a long pin, which the other where you key it into the other device's keyboard, there you're out of band, not just relying on radio. But nobody wants to do that. You just want to say, "Oh, look, magic! I'm we're paired." It's like, yes, to whom? <laughs> no way to know for sure. To whom are we paired? Someday you should uh, look at Bluetooth LE, which is crazy. I was driving down, uh, I was guess I was blue, what do you call Bluetooth war driving? Blue driving? I was, <laughs> I was bicycling uh, through a neighborhood. I was trying to pair my phone to my helmet, my Bluetooth helmet. And all of these, I'm seeing like speaker after speaker and not just speakers. I mean, all kinds of Bluetooth devices popping up here. And I don't think LE does any authentication, does it? It just goes, yeah, yeah, fine, good. We should, we'll make this easy. Let's make this easy on both yeah, of us. There, there has to be a pairing event. So so you, you you do typically need to make both devices, you know, like prime them to, to connect to each These other. These devices and, were, were broadcasting their Bluetooth identity, and I think most do because I think manufacturers say, oh, we don't want this whole, you know, pairing key thing. Let's just talk to each other. So there's a lot yeah. of new devices, Bluetooth LE devices, that just talk to your phone. Like there's nothing. You don't do anything. Wow. I think that's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. I would love to know especially more about when, that. Especially when your your house 
alarm security system. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. all the things I saw. <laughs> <laughs> I, refrigerators. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Well, uh, you know, I mean, this is the this is that old age old you know tension between convenience and security, and the Bluetooth yep. folks just want to make it easier and easier and easier. Yep. Yeah. I think it has to do with beaconing. I think there was this push for a while to have these Bluetooth beacons. And it turns out every Apple device is a beacon. We, they just never told anybody. Steve, we do this weekly. And you're still not jaded? 14 for years? Four, for 14 years. Going, here we are, the beginning of number 15 and going strong. Happy birthday. on our. I don't know. I have to look up what the 14th anniversary gift is. It's probably not anything nice. <laughs> it's probably, you know, paper or something. But happy 14th anniversary. Yeah, this actually, I did the, the Tech Talk column for eight years in InfoWorld. Uh, so this is the longest thing you've ever done. Yeah. This is the, Including no, no your relationship. <laughs> no relationship has lasted this long. Yeah, Leo, it's you and me, baby. It's you and me. Okay, I'm just going to say the traditional 14th anniversary gift would be ivory, gold jewelry. Now I know why the chat room kept talking about ivory. Gold jewelry or an opal, agate, or bloodstone. Oh, Leo, you really shouldn't. <laughs> gold is accepted, I'm sure. A Kruger Rand or two would be fine. You'll find Steve at his website. That's grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where Shields Up lives. That's where Squirrel lives. That's where Decombobulator and Shoot the Messenger and all the great freebies Steve has been giving away over the decades. You'll also find his bread and butter, Spinrite, the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. Hie thee hither and get, the, get thou a copy of the beautiful Spinrite. You need it if you've got a hard drive. We will uh, also have uh, the show there. Uh, we're going to edit it, send it over to Steve. He put 16 kilobit. Do we send you 16 kilobit or do you downsample? I downsample. So he has a little script he's doing, but taking the 64 kilobit, which he also has for audio version, and puts it. And, that, and, that, and then I put it crappy. up for Elaine. I put it up for Elaine because she likes to, to have the, the smaller one just to oh, pursue yeah. of her own bandwidth. Because she yeah. lives in the middle of nowhere. Um, but, and so she types it in, and uh, which is great because we sound. Like Thomas Edison on the first recording, to poor Elaine's going. Hello, Elaine. We're talking to you through our microphones. Sorry, Elaine. She had to write that. She now the funny thing is everything we say she has to write. It's kind of mean of me. I'm sorry, Elaine. GRC.com handwritten transcripts by a professional. Uh, 16 kilobit audio, 64 kilobit audio, all that great stuff. Spin right. You want a video of the show or higher quality audio? We have it. Actually, we don't have higher quality. We have the same quality audio. But that, that's at our website, twit.tv slash SN. That's the page. All the shows, all 14 years are there, 728 episodes. I'll give you a little tip. You can go to any episode by just typing twit.tv slash SN and the episode number. So the very first episode is twit.tv slash SN1, if you want to hear what we sounded like when Steve's mustache was still black. Uh, uh, what else? Uh, you can subscribe. Actually, I really encourage people to subscribe. We love it if you subscribe. Just get your favorite podcast client and search for security now, and all of the shows will be yours. Thank you, Steve. 
My friend, a pleasure. I will see you next week for 729 as we cruise further into year 15. And we're entering our adolescence. (laughs) Explains a lot. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time. Bye. Security now.